From a current godliness, we've created a fourth component here, which in the future mm. will also be in every software that we build and that we that we make, right? And if that is true, that's a very major disruption, right? If you look yeah. at the last couple of ones when they built CPUs, they created Microsoft, created Intel, uh, you know, when we created databases, they created Oracle, when we created networking, we created, you know, the Cisco's and Google's of the world. And so we probably have something of that scale ahead of us, right? Something that will create trillion dollar companies. Welcome to Orbit, the HG podcast series where we speak to leaders and innovators from across the software and tech ecosystem to discuss key trends in building businesses that endure. My name is Chris Kint. I'm the head of the value creation team in HG, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Guido Appenzeller. Guido is a special advisor to Adresen Horowitz, former CTO at Intel and VMware, and a leading technology expert. At HG, we've been fortunate to hear Guido speak most recently on AI and its effect on a world of B2B SaaS. Thank you, Guido, for joining us. It's great to be here today. Thank you. So Guido, I can't believe that it's now almost a year since ChatGPT was launched and hit our world. And I must admit, I didn't, and I think many of us didn't quite see the powerful impact that it would have and how much discussion has been sparked around it since. It would be really kind of helpful to have your perspective on how we got here and really what took us to the place where we are today. I think it surprised everyone how suddenly AI has often made a leap forward. And you know, when I did my PhD at Stanford, AI was known as this thing which looked fantastic in demos. But yeah. then when you actually tried to put it in production, it never quite worked, right? And uh, continue like that, you know, pretty much until the, the 2010s, the mid-2010s, like 2015 or so, when some of the large hyperscalers, Google, Facebook, you know, Uber, Tesla, to some degree, figured out how to use deep learning type techniques and really create value, right? They built these massive internal networks to, for example, um, optimize advertising and, mm-hmm. and, and, and similar tasks. But it was still something which only the very large hyperscale style companies could do. You would need a, a large amount of investment. You needed very specialists. Like my, my fellow Stanford PhDs, right? These kind of yeah. people that are very expensive. And they would work for a long time and build a model that could solve a particular problem. And then suddenly, you know, I want to say mid last year, right? Mm-hmm. Roughly, we had a, a couple of major breakthroughs where we made models bigger. Suddenly we saw these new emergent behaviors. Nobody quite understands why, but basically once you cross certain size thresholds, you saw new capabilities that previous models didn't exhibit. And those made these models massively more yeah. useful, enabled different users to model with this idea of foundation models. And that really changed the unit economics and the adoption of this new AI. I guess the question that people are now grappling with is, what analogy do we use for this technology change? What would you kind of draw the kind of parallel to in terms of kind of previous technology changes that we've seen hit our worlds? It's a great question. I mean, to me, it looks right now like this is a very big technology wave. So something that creates immediate value, right? I'm using this technology every day, like some other technology waves where the value took much, much longer to develop. Mm-hmm. We're also seeing a very rapid uptake, right? If you look at, at statistics, how quickly people are adopting this, like OpenAI, for example, being possibly the fastest company from the first dollar to the first $2 billion run rate in, in yeah. the history of tech, right? So we're seeing these tools being adopted much quicker than previous of revolutions of similar type. I think in part what's happening here is that we've effectively created a new fundamental component to build systems. Mm-hmm. Right? That doesn't happen very often. We uh, you know, invented CPUs and that yeah. essentially took compute and make it free. Right? We yeah. create databases which allowed somebody who has no idea how balanced trees or any of the complex interesting technologies work to quickly access data. We developed networking that allowed us to transmit data for essentially free, at least in mm-hmm. you know, fact of 100,000 cheaper than before. And now we created something new, uh, models, which allow us to solve certain problems orders of magnitude faster and cheaper than yeah. previously. And you know, if, if you look at these other technologies, you know, like compute, storage, networking, 
they became fundamental building blocks, which today are used in pretty much every software that's out there. And so my current gut feeling is we've created a fourth component here, which in the future mm. will also be in every software that, that we mm. build and that we that we make, right? And if that is true, that's a very major disruption, right? If you look yeah. at the last couple of ones, when they built CPUs, they created Microsoft, created Intel, uh, you know, when we created databases, they created Oracle, when we created networking, we created, you know, the Cisco's and, and Google's of the world. And so we, we, we probably have something of that scale ahead of us, right? Something mm. that will create trillion dollar companies. So this is where the crystal ball, I suspect, gets a little bit hazy and fuzzy. But I mean, what's your perspective on what we might therefore see or how we might expect to see software companies evolve. And, and maybe it's easy to kind of think about this in the shorter term. Yeah, maybe something that is a bit more visible. And then do you have any kind of thoughts on what potential routes or vectors of disruption we might see in software longer term? It's a great question. And you know, I think the honest answer is we, we don't know yet, right? I mean, yeah. look, as we were sitting here and we just had seen the first demo of a web browser, yep. it's very hard to predict all of the internet, right? Mm -hmm. There's just there's so many things happening. I think nobody looked at the first web browser and said, oh, wow, Walmart is toast as the number one retailer in the United States. They're going to get yeah. replaced, right? They're sort of making these leaps, understanding the secondary effects is, is really, really difficult. But if we look at other similar transitions, I mean, what often happens is you have a first wave where basically the technology gets retrofitted into existing products, mm -hmm. right? And I think we're seeing that. For example, Microsoft with their Copilot style products, you know, where they're saying you have PowerPoint and now you have an assistant that helps you mm -hmm. use PowerPoint more efficiently, mm -hmm. but still with the same workflows as before, right? Or Adobe, I think, did a great job with this of inpainting tool, you know, where it's I mean, now a new Photoshop tool. I can say, you know, mark an area and say, replace this area with something. But then there's usually a second wave where basically people rethink the software from the bottom, you know, if I would reinvent Photoshop, you know, and my assumption is everything is centered around models, it would probably look completely different to what I have yeah. today, right? And if you look at a modern stable diffusion interface, I think you can see some of the traits of that. So I think the second wave will be the really interesting thing where we see a much bigger impact on, on incumbents. The question that I'm sure many kind of software executives and investors are kind of grappling with is who is going to really help shape that next evolution. What kind of defensive modes do the incumbents have? What can they leverage? And how real might it be that the companies of the future, well, we don't, haven't yet been formed and that there's a kind of chance from outside disruption. Do you have a kind of perspective on who's kind of best place to kind of push ahead here? I think it depends very much industry by industry. I don't see sort of any general rule for this. In general, I think AI itself, we haven't seen any very deep modes so far. Right. There, there's certain industries, you know, that have a network effect or have a two-sided marketplace, right? They, they provide really deep modes. It's very hard to, to uh, yeah. catch up to incumbents. In, in AI, you know, we have model training costs, but if you look at Llama 2, for example, which is, you know, one of the best models that's out there, mm -hmm. that was trained for low single digits million dollars, right? Which that's not a yeah. big mode, right? Maybe having people who understand how to do this is a mode, but that's mm -hmm. more like a traditional advantage in, in having the best team, right? Having proprietary data could be a mode. And mm -hmm. so if you control a substantial fraction of all the data in a particular space, say Bloomberg or so, right? Maybe that's enough of a mode to provide you with some defensibility. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think thanks to the Renaissance, you know, this idea that knowledge should be universally available. Most research today is, is available on the internet, right? And, and you know, most text is available on the internet. So for most of these models, like the data is, is publicly available. Yeah. I think there's no really deep modes here. Mm -hmm. I think at the end, it'll probably look much more like a classic software industry where it's about execution, it's about mm -hmm. building great teams, it's about having the best infrastructure and, and, and running fast. Yeah. Interesting. You kind of bring up an important uh, or an interesting kind of discussion point around the fact that so much of the knowledge that these models get trained on is out there in the public domain. And a lot of these models have been trained by large portions or maybe all available good quality data that's uh, yeah. that's out on the web. 
So then that kind of also then raises an immediate next question is, okay, how much further do we have to go on these models? Are we now at an inflection point or are there other routes to driving continued step changes and improvements in what we're seeing in terms of these kind of core AI model performances? Another really, really good question. I mean, I'm not sure there's a widely shared opinion on that. I think mm. it's, there's an active debate, right? And with various players arguing one way or the other. But if we look at it, we know, let's take large language models as yeah. an example. Right? For large language models, there's something called the chinchilla scaling laws that basically tell us if you want to train a larger model, you need more data, right? Mm -hmm. And if you train it on less data, you're sort of leaving money on the table, right? It's not actually a better model. Can get some benefit by overtraining a model, but it's, uh, you know, so you can basically make a small model better by training it longer and longer. But just, but model size is coupled to amount of trained data that you have. Yeah. Today, the top models are trained on something like uh, 3 trillion tokens, you know, or order of magnitude, which is roughly 3 trillion words. And that represents a substantial fraction of all human written knowledge that was ever created and probably in terms of quality, you know, the best parts of it, right? It's, you know, it's all of Wikipedia. It's, it's a large part, part of the internet, right? And yeah. some of them have taken, you know, Reddit and GitHub and, you know, some of the, these other sources. And so it's, can you go up by another factor of 10? Maybe, right? Can you go up by a factor of 100? It's totally unclear how to yeah. me at least, right? Really have to do something radically new, like teaching models how to experiment or something mm -hmm. like that, you know, even just doing thoughts, thought experiments. So I think there's probably other areas, just in terms of purely scaling models up, right? We're, we're running into limitations. There's a second issue, and that's just the compute platform we're running on, right? Mm. If I can run a model inside a single graphics card, you know, things are a lot easier versus having to distribute it over multiple cards. Yeah. There's some interesting technologies like a mixture of experts where we basically have multiple smarter models and route tokens to one of them, you know, in a clever way. But, but all these increase uh, complexity. So if you go with a monolithic model, even in 8-bit, right, you're limited to 18 billion parameters because you have currently don't have much more than 80 gigabyte uh, graphics cards basically to run these on. Yeah. So I think we're running a number of limitations. I wouldn't expect us to see big size increases. Well, I would expect to see some level of size increase, but they'll probably slow down, slow down a little bit uh, in the future. Yeah. We've seen in our kind of HD portfolio that our companies are kind of grappling with what is the right response. There are many options out there, how to get started different providers you've got open kind of source models as well mm -hmm. i know this is a big kind of complex topic to unpick maybe as a starting point it would be really helpful to hear how you think about what the key kind of components are of that tech stack or that ai tech stack and then maybe we can kind of unpick some of the trends and the runners and the riders that we have within there. yeah that sounds great i think a tech AI stack in many ways looks quite similar to a classic software stack at the bottom you have the silicon which for AI today is mostly NVIDIA. Mm -hmm. And there's some other chips from like the large cloud providers. You know, all of the big clouds have their own or building their own. And then we have also some other third parties like AMD and Intel are trying. Mm -hmm. But NVIDIA is just a fantastic lock-in because of their software stack, yeah. right? I mean, it's a little bit like the old Wintel days, you know, when you had Intel plus Windows on top. It was very hard to break into that. And so we, we have a little bit the same thing with NVIDIA built CUDA and then all the software was built on top of that. Very hard to replace it. So they're sitting pretty in Jensen as a, as a mm -hmm. happy camper there. Yeah, on top of that, you have the clouds, right, that actually make it accessible. Today, most AI software runs in clouds, and, and very few people run their own data center. Amongst, for many reasons, but one of them is actually that if you want to build high-density AI builds, you have such crazy power and heat requirements, and cooling requirements, hmm. that a classical data center is often not able to absorb it. Like a single high-end AI server needs more power than the whole rack hmm. in a classic data center. In some cases, can actually apply. But so yeah, you have AI clouds, all of the big ones are offering AI compute capacity. We also have seen some amazing specialty clouds, and we've heard from CoreWeave, 
that they announced they raised about $2 billion in debt and announced that they had north of $2 billion in uh, committed deals for next year. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, for a startup, that's just these are crazy numbers. Yeah, right? it's like absolutely. A, it turns out in an early gold rush, making picks and shovels is a, is a great business here. Right? We have thought, yeah. Yeah. Then on top of that, we have a software ecosystem and mm-hmm. that is sort of also layering like classic software ecosystems. So we have, you know, the, the very early guys like in OpenAI, they have yep. to integrate vertically just because, you know, if, if there's no infrastructure, you have to do everything yourself. Yeah. But then some of the newer companies, you know, we're seeing a split where one company trains a model like Meta mm-hmm. with Llama or Stability with Stable Diffusion. Then you have another company hosting them, like for example, Replicate or Hugging Face. They're doing great business of just taking these models and turning them to very yeah. easy to use serverless APIs. And then on top of that, you have the actual application, yeah. right, which can sometimes be very thin, and uh, which, which may or may not be a good thing. Right? It yeah. means you have less defensibility, but also means you have amazingly fast time to market and they can run quickly. It's starting to look like a classic infrastructure stack where you might have you know, clouds with databases and, and applications. This might be a question that dates very quickly. Maybe we should call out that it's uh, kind of September 2023, right? But I guess one thing that we know kind of software CTOs are grappling with is what the right technology strategy is in this space. I know we've seen many go with the front runner, kind of OpenAI, and use kind of that vertically integrated offering that they provide. Yeah, yeah. But then there are all sorts of other kind of temptations that pull them away from that. So I wonder whether you have a perspective on if we were to try and roll the clock forwards 12 months, will we still see AI with a level of dominance and it being the default option for SaaS kind of businesses? Or do you expect that alternative part of the ecosystem to develop and gain more share? Boy, predicting one year ahead in, in AI, that's uh, so, so uh, we'll be positioned as best guesses here. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big. First, let's sketch out what we have today, right? I mean, mm. we have a range of closed source model providers. Let's stick to LLMs for a second, right? Yep. Because there's many, many categories of models today, but LLMs is one of the more mature model types. So we have, you know, OpenAI, we have uh, Anthropic with Claude, we have Cohere, you know, Inflect, uh, you know, along the list. And we have specialty models like Character AI, for example. They they build a model specifically for chat. So those are, let's leave those separate, but let's, let's all focus on the on sort of more mainstream model as a service type companies, right? Um, so we have the, the closed source folks, but then we also have now open source alternatives like Meta's Llama is an amazing model, like Llama 2, uh, you know, which is, I'd say, roughly at the level of GPT 3.5, right? right? Which is very impressive. And you can just take that and run it in your own data center or, you know, go to somebody else and, and host it for you. And there's other open source models as well. So in these kind of markets, if we compare that to, say, operating systems or databases, typically as the market matures for one use case, you see the field slim down a bit, concentrates towards the market leader. So if you are OpenAI on the closed source side or Llama on the open source side, I'd be pretty optimistic that they'll still be around. Right? Mm-hmm. Usually if you're the number one and can keep that spot you know, more gravitates towards you. I think if you're not the number one and you don't have a clearly defined niche, life mm-hmm. gets harder. You know, being the Number two, closed source operating system. I'm not even sure who that would be, like server operating system, right? Yeah. Like BSD probably or something. But basically, they have a little bit of a positioning problem, yeah. right? And, and so my best guess on what we see today is that I would expect concentration towards the top in, in each of these categories, open source yeah. and closed source. Yeah. yeah, got it. One other topic, and maybe we see more of this in Europe, though, there's a, kind of a discussion that's happening everywhere it's around regulation and how the regulators will respond. And also, is it going to be multiple different regulatory responses or will there be some kind of convergence as well? What's your take on what you're seeing in the market at this stage and develop? Yeah, it's interesting. Regulating tech markets very early it tends to not go well, right? First of all, something that's developing as quickly as AI, it's incredibly hard to regulate. But then also, regulatory agencies often are not even at the frontier of what's happening, right? And being six months too late is fatal in these, mm. in these markets, right? You're, mm. 
you're just too far behind the curve. I mean, my impression is, let's first ask the question, why do we need regulation here? I think if you ask people, there's actually lots of different reasons that get pointed out. I mean, there's these sort of, you know, oh, AI will take over the world and kill us all. And uh, uh, to me, that's just a sort of a category error, right? <laughs> it's like saying your toaster will, will kill us all. This is a tool. You input something, you get something out. But there's no living thing there, right? I think mm -hmm. that people are projecting something into these models that just doesn't exist in that sense, right? And, and maybe that'll change at some point in the future. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, very hard to reason about something that doesn't exist yet. You know, think about the threat model there. So it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. There's a question of regulating it against biases. And it's not clear to me we actually need any new regulation for that, right? I think a lot of the tools today are actually quite effective. There's you know, similar concerns around intellectual property, right? For those categories, I think if we focus on regulating the actual applications that use these models, as opposed to the models themselves, we probably entered a much, much better spot. Because a lot of the software today, if you have certain types of software for certain applications, you may not have certain biases. If you're creating certain sets of data or calling in certain ways, you have to respect uh, copyright. AI doesn't fundamentally change that. We may have to tweak it a little bit, but I think directionally, and, and this is you know comes from discussions I've had in the United States with even some senior legal folks on the copyright holder side, they feel like we may have enough tools already to, to enforce what we need to enforce there. Mm -hmm. So right now, I think trying to regulate this is doing a lot more harm than good. I mean, I think yeah. the EU regulation, from what I've seen, I haven't studied in depth, but it seems very misguided. Mm -hmm. right? I think the United States thinks with a more voluntary uh, regime that, that seems to be a little bit better. You know, I recently had a discussion with the CTO of NASA and his thoughts on regulation were that in the early 2000s when United States private space companies were taking off like SpaceX and, and, and various others, one thing they basically, they looked at it and decided to very consciously that they don't want to immediately regulate it because it's still too unclear how this will evolve. Mm -hmm. So they decided to have a learning period, which actually I believe just ended, where they basically said, during this learning period, we're not going to regulate. We're just going to sort of do one-on-one -on -one decisions, right, but not try to pass anything blanket mm -hmm. and just approve individual flights. And then at the end of it, we think we have enough data that we can do this kind of find good regulation. I think something like that might work here as well, mm -hmm. right? Because something this early, I mean, if you put the smartest people of AI in, in one room, you know, they still couldn't find good regulation today. It's interesting how hard this conversation is to look even 12 months ahead where normally we have conversations where we try to look many more years ahead rather than just trying to get to grips what the next 12 months might look like. But you are discovering a picture where the ecosystem around AI is still responding, including the regulator. The other kind of response is, and you called it, right, we have that renaissance mindset around kind of making knowledge and data broadly and publicly available. Yeah. Do you see the potential for the move away from that for people to kind of close off that kind of knowledge sharing more kind of widely and publicly in response to these models kind of training on that kind of data? Is that something that you see could be more of a trend that we might see in the months and quarters or even years ahead? I think to some degree that has happened. If you look at it up to GPT-3, right, OpenAI published all the details around every model, exactly how it was trained, and then they stopped right? mm -hmm. because suddenly vast amounts of money were involved and became a much more competitive uh, yeah. industry. That said, while the company is becoming more commercially focused, which you know, I think is fair. The training data itself is still mostly public. If you look at what these models are trained on, most of the data is available on the internet. You can just download it, so we have a lot of hard drive space. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, the quality of a model, to the extent we can tell, right, it depends on two things. It's, it's sort of the, the quality of the data that goes in, and then there's still some voodoo and tuning hyperparameters and really, you know, figuring out the training regime. But the data sources for most of these top models actually are fairly similar. Some of them may have proprietary data. It doesn't feel to me like right now that is really what differentiates these models. Okay, so there isn't 
something where you say that there are a handful of key super high impact data sources, be it a Stack Overflow, be it a Reddit or other type of data sources. Your point is that a lot of the value that the models get through training comes from that kind of broadly available data sets that can't just be locked down by a handful of key data. That's right. I mean, I love Reddit, but you know, when it comes to high quality data sources, Wikipedia ranks a little ahead of Reddit has. Yeah, good. Are there any other kind of disruption risks that you kind of see on the horizon here that people should be mindful of? And I guess one common news story that's in the press a bit more lately is, again, is around Taiwan and kind of global chip supply. Is that something that we should have on our radars? Uh, or are there any other risks that you'd add to that list as well? There's probably a couple. I mean, the chip situation at the moment is already very constrained, you know, even uh, taking out the geopolitical risk. We currently have an acute shortage of GPUs. You know, it's, it's not entirely clear, but it looks like we might actually run into not only capacity limits of NVIDIA building enough cards, but also capacity limits of TSMC, Taiwan uh, yeah. and Semiconductor, yeah. yeah. to build enough of these chips because, you know, their three nanometer nodes are getting constrained and are sold out at this point, I believe, for at least 24, possibly 25. Mm-hmm. And that means sort of the amount of chips we can build is limited because, you know, building new fab capacity takes a very long time. Yeah. Right? Building a fab is a, costs many billions and, and takes many years. These models are ridiculously computationally intensive, right? I mean, the training models 10 to the 23 floating point operations, that's that's an absolutely crazy number, right? Even inference per word of input or output takes twice as much operations as you have parameters in the model. So that's, uh, you know, uh, billions of floating point operations per word that is output. So you multiply that with the number of people in the world that want to use this, and you need a staggering number of these chips. So I think that there's a real shortage. It's probably going to continue at least for a little bit. Mm. And uh, yes, any kind of geopolitical hiccups would potentially make this much worse. Um, I think at this point, people understand that there's a lot of efforts underway to beef up chip capacity, you know, distributed more widely around the world, uh, you know, including Europe, right? There's a, there's a number of initiatives underway. So I think we're slowly getting a handle on it, but this is, these are very slow processes. Building fabs uh, takes a lot of time. Yeah. And just kind of out of curiosity, how much kind of lag time is there in the system, right? So if things kind of shut down, I guess, tonight, how long would it take for us to then see the repercussions in terms of what kind of compute power and access we have to AI, would the lead times to impact be quite short? Or actually, is there enough steps in the kind of supply chain here that it'll take a while for us to feel the effects? No, we will feel the effects quickly, and it will take us a long time to catch up. Building a new fab is in the order of three to five years, depending on on how complex the process is. And these are very complex ones that we're looking at. Takes a vast amount of money. It's also a complex international supply chain, right? Mm-hmm. Where certain parts only uh, come from Europe, other parts uh, only yeah. come from Asia, right? So and you have to get all these pieces uh, lined up correctly. You know, all that said, I think we'll eventually sort out that bit. I think at the moment, the biggest problem we have is just not enough capacity. This exponential boom where, you know, GPUs used to be this niche product for gamers or maybe a couple of AI researchers to know every software application needs this as a foundational technology to run on. It's a huge step. An economist might tell you that if you're in a kind of a market where you have supply capacity increasingly constrained yet demand keeps booming, that a very natural response will be a very kind of steep step up in price. I think we're seeing that today. <laughs> we are starting to and- Again, where do you think that might go? Because at the moment, uh, we're still kind of reveling in the kind of dramatic cost and productivity improvements. If we're looking at how quickly we can access certain images that would otherwise have taken a long time for a kind of specialist video editor or artist to create, that gap is still kind of tremendous. But how quickly might that kind of pricing picture move on us? We're still early enough in the cycle. We're seeing enough technological 
advancement, I would expect things to get continuously cheaper. It's just a mm. question of how steep that drop is. So I should, mm. to give an example, when we started, for example, doing large language models last year, the efficiency and performance that we had was actually fairly low in many cases, right? I mean, if you naively run a, a transformer on a graphics card, for inference, a large model, you're probably going to be in the single digit percentage of GPU utilization. Mm. And you maybe people run this with 32 bits, right? But then people figured out instead of 32 bits, we can get out to 16 bit precision. Right? So we can make the individual filling point numbers shorter, right? Mm. Which allows us to basically do twice as many operations, you know, in one cycle. And then they move to eight bits, right? So mm. that gives, gives you a, a factor of four, right? And then people figured out with techniques like flash attention or a variety of tricks to basically speed this up further. So we probably today between sort of an unoptimized versus an optimized large language model, we have more than a factor of 10 in mm -hmm. performance difference. Mm -hmm. And probably that journey isn't quite over yet, right? You know, if you can go from 8-bit to 4-bit and then to 2-bit, I'm not quite sure if we can, if 2-bit works, right? But 4-bit probably works for some applications. Mm -hmm. uh, we have to, you know, figure out exactly, uh, you know, how we need to normalize. And so there's a learning curve there, but I think eventually we might get there. We're getting better in understanding how to make models smaller while keeping the same performance, mm -hmm. right? But breaking them up into multiple smaller models and, and routing cleverly or just overtraining them, right? So in the early days of databases or so, we saw even on the same hardware, like continuous improvements year over year, just because people, you know, where do I understand the technology better? I think the same thing will happen AI. So I don't see the cost going up, right? And the cost today is frankly very low, right? The image generation is about a hundredth of a cent mm. before I go back to having a human edit that in Photoshop. <laughs> it's a long way to go. Yeah, it's a, it's a long way to go. I, the magic here is that we created something that can, in many cases, reduce cost by a factor of 100,000 or so. Yeah. And I think we'll never go back. It will yeah. never go expensive enough for us to go back. Okay. So your point is that, on the one hand, there is this tremendous amount of headroom, and there's a real step change, right, that we are seeing in terms of productivity. And then on top of that, just in the underlying kind of technology, there's just so many efficiency improvements that we're still working through that that is giving us a lot of extra headroom. That's right. Yeah. In terms of further improvement. Exactly right. Thanks for listening to part one of this Orbit podcast. Part two is already available wherever you usually listen. In part two... Which part of the software and business use a database? Well, all of them do, right? Which of them will use a model? All of them will do. Which one? That gets a lot more complicated and how and there's many things you can do uh, um, uh, well or badly. But this is a new fundamental building block, which will be ubiquitous. And, and therefore, you need to really enable everybody to adopt this across the organization. The Industrial Revolution, afterwards, there was still a farmer, but now the farmer's driving a tractor as opposed to doing it manually with a hand, right? It's, exactly. it's, a, it's a different skill set. It's a lot more leverage, uh, you know, but still farming. Thanks for listening to Orbit, the HG podcast. If you'd like to find out more about HG and our work building enterprises that endure, subscribe to our newsletter at hgcapital.com forward slash newsletters.